Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tom Gedalia. I have some time here in the afternoon because the first day you don't have to teach. Um, so maybe I'll um, take care of the bio this, uh, this week's today while well, I have the time. And I have to prepare stuff, obviously, for Yom Kippur. Uh, today's the talk is um, first of the New Year, the Jewish New Year, and uh, the same sponsor is very nice of him. The same uh, <laughs> Stefanski, who did the last one of the last years, sponsoring the first one of this year. So thank you very much, Mishpachos Stefanski. And um, I saw last week. I didn't ask anybody for names. Because I saw a week or two ago, and I looked, and this month, I saw a name, and not of a big rabbi, but an interesting person, and uh, I don't want to get too historicist over here, but uh, Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz, who we'll see, is, uh, was not a rabbi, was not a Rosh Hashiva, not anything, and sometimes people have, uh, let's put it this way, if they send had his name on the, on the yard site list, somehow or other, he and his family got his name stuffed in there, it's very interesting because he was a, what we would call today a uh, Haredi politician. But not in the same sense that you would think of today. Uh, let me explain. So I'm talking today about Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz. I don't think he was a rabbi at all. That's, that's what's interesting about it. He was the secretary of Yitzhak Hohen Specter. That's his claim to fame, but he built on that. So I'm going to be doing something a little different. Instead of talking about some big raw of Rosh Hashiva or that sort of type, which is what we would call, in the technical jargon, jargon the uh, primary intelligentsia of the from world. Um, instead, we deal with a phenomenon with which we're all familiar, and that is uh, the following. You know, there's today, to use, uh, to use simple language, today we have what's called Shiva world, right? Something like that. And so the idea is, everybody's supposed to learn. Okay, I get that. And... Um, now, the question becomes like this. But what are they learning? They're all learning Gemara. Meaning, they're learning the elite um, uh, curriculum. So everybody's starting to be a big rabbi. I mean, th- that's the curriculum. Uh, the Moskilim actually criticized for that reason. Because there's only going to be a few Rabbonim. There's only going to be a few Rosh Hashivas. Or to use modern language, only a few people can go into Chinuch. And nevertheless, everybody's having that kind of education. And so the result is... Throughout Jewish history, like today, that a small proportion of the people who are in learning are actually going to be in a type of, as I say, primary intelligence, you know, be, be in, in leadership or occupying very important or high intellectual, in Torah terms, positions. Uh, what about the rest of the people in Yeshiva? The guy who's not the best learner, he's okay, he's good. Or sometimes it's like this, he could be the best learner, he's not married to the right girl, he's not somebody's son-in-law, or a hundred variations of that. Now that's in the year 2020. What about the year 1920, 1820, 1720, 1620, and so forth? It's always been like that. So, usually you don't hear too much about these people because they don't write farm. 
they're not big rabbis, you know, they, they don't get into the pantheon of the elites, um, and it's understandable, just off the top of my head, the note of you had 400 Talmudian yeshiva, they weren't, I mean, he actually stuffed a lot of them into the rabbis, but a lot of them not, uh, Yeres Hamshitz had uh, thousands, literally thousands of students, which is amazing, and they weren't all rabbis, or, or Magidim, or uh, Rosh Hashibas, or Dayanim, or any of that stuff, well, I'm not, and what happens then? So, you know how it goes. Uh, some people are able to transit. This goes today also. Some people say, I guess, I'll go to college. So in other words, I know how to learn. But in addition, I don't need a parnosa. Someone else says, I guess, I'm in business. You know, a lot of people, a lot. Some people will be able to succeed, you know. Um, so they in, in in real estate or whatever they go into. And, yeah, they learned, you know, so and so many years in Lakewood, so many years in Israel, so many years in Israel. But what they do is they transition for financial purposes to another area. Um, that's, you know, the way, in fact, there's a big problem always in the world. What do you do to the guys who are not going to uh, get the jobs in, um, in Torah learning? Who are the people not going to be Rabbanim, not going to be in Clay uh, Kodesh or in Chinuch? What's the plans for them? So, uh, you know, this is basic. didn't start today. It's always been there, okay? didn't start today. Now, um, that's why our hero is a member of that. Uh, here's somebody who lived all his life totally in Lithuania uh, from 1838 to 1922. So he lives right through the second half, let's, let's put it this way, of the 1800s, in the first part of the 1900s, uh, the period of the Tsars and then the Russian Revolution afterwards, the communist takeover. So it's quite a stormy period. And, um, you know, he's from Kedan, which is a town in Lithuania you never heard of. My father lived there for a little while, actually, uh, a little while. But uh, the belly button of Litvishkite, let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, somebody, I think his father may have been a rabbi, something like that. But there's the point. The father's a rabbi, and the father has five kids. <laughs> they can't all be rabbis. They can't take the father's position, assuming that any of them do. You understand what I'm saying? What, how does life work? And so our hero today, Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz, is born in a, a small, I mean... By the standards of Lithuania, it's a town. Yeah, it's a small town. I believe they're actually, uh, the Lithuanian government is rebuilding the synagogue in Kedan for a tourist site. Uh, now that they killed all the Jews, they came to realize, the art historians, that the old shul that they destroyed was actually an artistic gem with stuff in it. And another, I believe in Lithuania, it's called Kedani or something like that. Anyway, uh, so he's born 1838, which means right in the middle when Tsar Nicholas I was the Tsar of Russia. Uh, and Tsar Nicholas I was like the worst. He was out to destroy Judaism. Uh, I mean, in, programmatically. And um, things were tough from the Yiddishkeit perspective. Uh, here's someone, therefore, growing up. Nicholas I was Tsar uh, from 1825 to 1855. So this guy's born 1838, so that means he's. 12, about 16, 17 years old when the czar dies. Okay, that's, that's important. Now, you know, being who he is, a rabbi's son, all the rest, even, this, even though he's a Yassim, his father died when he was young, like the Malvim. But, uh, you know, he's from family. They didn't, at this time, non-Frumkite hadn't hit these small towns in Lithuania. They didn't even know about it. And, uh, yeah, he goes to some yeshiva, tour, you know, over there, uh, whatever that means. In other words, this is when you said, not yeshivas of the type you're thinking of, the big fancy ones like Volodya and all that. Local businesses. 
local institutions, uh, schools of learning. Uh, you know, like in Baltimore, we have Nerysville. That's a big issue. But then you have a couple of small ones. And, you know, you heard of it. You didn't hear of it. It's true in Lakewood. It's true in, in, in New York. It's true in Munson. You know, like that. Uh, in his particular case, he was befriended. He was lucky that the Rav there took interest in him in general. The rabbi in Kedan was a famous person in the 19th century, although not known today. Avram Shimon Traub. He was a big Talmud Chacham. And the Rav... Uh, you know, like, l- try to look out for them a little bit, uh, which is better than you get for a lot of people. You know, they have, go through the yeshiva system and have nobody look out for you. And, um, like I say, he's an orphan and so forth. Then this Avram Shimon Traub was not just a regular rabbi of a community, although he was. He was a rabbi of Kedan, but he was a writer in both sense of the word. Um, I have his, um, if you get the, the black... Uh, what do you call it? Um, the, the new editions of the uh, Bahag, um, you know, put out by uh, who is it? Machon the, Yushalayim, the, one of those things. I have with the nice notes. They publish it with the notes of Avram Shimon Traub. See, somebody read a piece from Bahag. It's a little off the beaten track. And I also remember, I, I'm nine. Yeah, he also has on um, the Shar HaMelech. He has a uh, uh, notes, which is again a little bit unusual. And, you know, Sharmach and Rambam. And uh, in addition to this, Aram Shimon Traub was not the average rabbi in Lithuania who literally knew the Dalai Lamas of his village and nothing more. And it was only in learning and, no, and nothing other than learning. And I'm not saying that in a good way. I'm saying, so you're, the kids in your community might go off to Derek or something, and you don't know what's going on because you're spending all your time in learning. He wasn't like that. He was more active to find out what's going on in the community. And... Uh, therefore, our hero, who is, as I said before, about 16 years old or so, when the Tsar dies, that means his formative years, after 16 and on, are going to be in the, in the reign of, of the Tsar uh, Alexander II. So you had Nicholas I and Alexander II. You don't have to memorize all this. Just, you know, you should know a little bit of basics, like who George Washington and Abraham Lincoln are. In Russian history, these guys are very famous. And in Russian Jewish history, they're very famous. Or perhaps infamous. Now, the, it was a father and a son. Nicholas was the father. Alexander was the son. So, our hero, therefore, has his young years during this uh, very interesting reign. From 1855, actually, to 1881, when the Tsar was assassinated. <laughs> so, what is that? It's 25, 20, uh, you know, 27 years, something like that. Now, uh, 26 years. This was the period when, um, in other words, the 1850s, the second half, 1850s, the 60s, and the 70s particularly, and 1880s, this was the maximum period when people thought that it is possible that Russia, the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Russian Empire, will actually change and become democratic to some degree and westernized to some degree and more liberal to some degree, and therefore the anti-Semitism will abate, will be reduced, and that sooner or later, Russia will become more civilized like the other countries in Europe, and next thing you know, Russia will be as normal a country as England or France or something like that. You understand? That was the, uh, the hopes. Uh, the, the reign of Alexander II is identical with those years uh, because uh, Alexander II was the czar who was more... Um, uh, again, this is an extremely relative term. 
was more liberal. He emancipated the serfs, meaning he freed the slaves, not because he wanted to, but because that uh, circumstances compel him to do so. And not being as stupid as the other czars who wouldn't change when circumstances compelled you to do so, the very fact that he was willing to change on a number of issues when circumstances compelled him to do so is considered extremely liberal by Russian standards. Um, and so, you know, the other czars preferred to go down, which they did go down, uh, in spite of all the fact that everything was against them. Uh, that's how the Russian Revolution happened. And uh, anyway, so this is the time that he's uh, doing there. Now, the reason I tell you is like this. The Jews have a, a certain... Uh, we're not the smartest. We consider ourselves very smart. And, and some things we're smart. But having political vision, not necessarily one of them. And the I can tell you that the Jews in... Um, Russian Empire, which is uh, Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine, Belarus, you know, it's a huge area. The largest Jewish population community. They wanted very, very much to believe that, you know, things are going to get better. And um, they persuaded themselves that this is possible, or at least a section of them. And therefore, these were the maximum years of the Russian Haskalah. Because Haskalah is a movement I spoke about many times and places, but in the particular variety of it that I'm talking about, the Russian Haskalah, it's pretty much came to its full bloom in the same years as the reign of Alexander II, based on the idea that these little guys from villages and self-taught fellows, autodidacts, who uh, now were able to write Hebrew articles in Hebrew newspapers and things like that, they consider themselves to be political experts was Tutsuk in the belt. They didn't know nothing from nothing. They were stupid, but they thought they were. And they um, eventually constituted a trend which was fundamentally criti criticizing the old traditionalist Judaism as being so out of, out of touch that um, they don't realize that now, even in the Russian Empire, if the Jews were modernized to some degree or another, and it was never supposed to be modernizing at the, at the, at the cost of fundamentalism or nomianism, you still can be from, but you want to modernize, expand yourself in the classic Haskalah idea of not just Gemara, 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 uh, a wider uh, Judaism and a wider uh, uh, knowledge of the world around you. The 50s, 60s, 70s, these were the years. And um, what I can tell you is that the rich Jews across Russia, almost all of them, totally bought into this. And um, they, were, they were putting pressure out because they had, they had uh, money and influence. That uh, Russian Jewry, again, the Jewry of, of Lithuania, of Poland, of Ukraine, of Belarus, vast areas, uh, they should institute, I don't want to use the word reform Judaism because that would be sound like too formal, but they should institute changes and reforms. Now, the Rabbonim uh, didn't go along with this. However, most of them were so narrow-minded, little, you know, they had no idea how to deal with this whatsoever. Uh, they didn't know how to argue back, and they didn't know how to speak about Jewish politics. They simply had the attitude of unreconstructed conservatism, which is, this is how we used to do it before, and this is how we're going to continue to do it now. We've always done this in this town this way, and that's where we're going to continue to do it, you know? And that doesn't respond to the cogent criticisms that could be leveled against flaws and faults, or at least seeming flaws and faults, 
within the firm society. And so you end up with a very uh, interesting environment in which the Rabbonim um, had a hard time in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even though that was the most liberal period in Russia, precisely because it was the most liberal period in Russia, and the arguments that a masculine, whose newspapers now grew and flourished, and were read by everybody, including the Nitziv, all the from read newspapers, and that's all there was out there. Um, the from didn't have it within them to make their own newspapers. That's my point. They thought in very classic, old-fashioned, conservative terms. And uh, what's, w- w- what's going to be? Now, <clears throat> that means, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to explain this. That means, if I was the Rove in a town in Lithuania or someplace like that, Latvia or one of the Eastern Europe over there. And I said that, you know, these trends are a bit... My, my own worshippers wouldn't understand me. Like, what, what's wrong with the guy saying? You know, what, what's the problem? So you should have a little what, what What's the problem? You understand? And so the guy who proposed it is not so from. Big deal. Like, what, what, what's so bad about that? We're Shemar Shabbos. We know he isn't. You know, the guy's a little more educated. Went to college, maybe not, whatever. You know, what... So what I'm trying to get across is like this. You had a traditionalist mass consciousness, but you did not have an orthodox mass consciousness. This is a matter of how you self-identify. If somebody says, you know, I'm a regular Jew just like the guy next door to me. He's not Shammah Shabbos. I'm Shammah Shabbos. All right. No. I'm aware of that difference, but it's not a significant difference. You see? If the leader of the organization which I belong to it's a guy, like I said before, who's not from all the rest of it. Mm, all right, I am, he isn't, you know, big deal. I mean, it'd be better if he was, but you don't have a sense that, wait a minute, he's already uh, for, uh, belonging to another camp. Uh, there are no camps. All Jews are the same. And, you know, some are a little more religious, some are a little less religious. Always been like that, which is true, it always was like that. And the from world, by and large, Number one, didn't know what to do. And the few that knew what I'm talking about were frustrated by the fact that they were well aware that 99%, probably, of their own Balabatim and fellow Jews didn't see things their way. A person like I'm describing would be a Mishra Salantar. It's a facet of the time Mishra Salantar. who's a contemporary of our hero. Right? He was 30 years older. Mishra uh, Salantar knew that Things are going in the wrong direction. But the from Jews themselves, the Orthodox observant masses out there, you're not going to get them to see themselves to be Haredim, Agoda types, and go fight against the non from all the rest of it. Uh, why? Maybe these non from are pointing out good things that'll help all of us. Uh, and so the guy said he doesn't believe in this part of the third hour. All right, you know, yeah, like we say, love Davka. And so he said it. Doesn't mean that what he wrote is something I can't read, doesn't mean if a Maskilic author wrote a good novel, even though it could be full of fear and all the rest of it, all right, so I know it's full of fear, you know, that part I leave out, meaning I, I just uh, mentally, you know, uh, don't pay attention to that. And, uh, but, right, but it was a good story, you know, it was a good novel. This is the era of uh, Alexander II. And the Russian Jews, and especially the Maskilim, wanted so much, for totally understandable reasons, to believe that the terrible repression that the Russian Jewry was under, which was a legal repression, in all these years, is soon going to be a thing of the past. Because 
the time I'm talking about, the 1850s, 60s, is exactly when all the other anal countries in Europe cracked. Uh, Germany, Austria, uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, one country after another, the Ottoman Empire, all the countries who formerly would not give the Jews civil rights turned and gave them civil rights in the 1850s and especially the 1860s. That's when the change happened. If, if anything, a, a wave of great anti-clericalism against the church arose among Europe at that time. It was a key era of secularism, and the secularism included, among other things, the idea that you can't discriminate against the Jews just because they're a different religion, and the Jews have to be given complete and total civil rights. So why didn't it hit Russia? They, it will, you know, tomorrow. This czar is a lot, lot better than the father was, which is true. And you'll see, little by little, we'll get there. Uh, but we have to meet him halfway. The classic argument of Haskalah. The guy want to be friends with us, you've got to be friends with them. They want us, they, you know, they're willing to, to, to make concessions to us, we got to be willing to make concessions to them. And um, anyway, this is the era. Now, Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz grew up like this. Aaron Shimon Traub, the, the guy who was a rabbi with, I think was one of the people that was aware of what I'm talking about. He was a person who used to write articles. This rabbi, who was a big gon, used to write articles in the Hebrew press trying to argue against the what I would call the left-wing masculine. Now, the very fact that he's writing articles in the Hebrew press means he's a right-wing from Moscow because regular up on him in Russia don't write in the Hebrew press, <laughs> right? But, you know, it's changing. So that, I think, in my opinion, you know, was Pyle on our hero. Now, if he's born in 1858, that means he's growing up and learning, and I don't know what he was doing because he never got a job in the typical sense. He's, he, he, he obviously wasn't married to anybody influential. He was the opposite of rich. And so you have somebody who's 20 years old in 1858, and his 20s, he eventually moves to um, to uh, uh, Kovna. Uh, I think he came there 1868, so that means when he was 30 years old. So he kind of knocked around. Uh, he got married when he was, I think, 22. And he knocked around trying to find, you know, a job. Now, what you did in that time is you engaged the whole Eastern Europe was like a flea market. I'm serious. And so, you know, what you did is you tried to engage in, in business here, and you flop, and you try some business. You know, you try to sell feathers, and if that works, it works. I don't mean selling it in a, in a store in the bazaar. You trade in it. You know, you get a whole little capital, and to use American terminology, you, f- you find some pencils, you buy each one for a nickel, and you sell them for eight cents. You know, or you, you find some other commodity, you buy for a dollar, and totally sell for a buck fifty. But that's good profit, buck forty. You know, that kind of little petty, anti kind of thing. Because that's all there was at that time. Now, he moved to Kovna, I don't remember, sometime in the 1860s. I think in 1868, I think. Um, uh, the year matters for the following reason, right? Um, uh, let's put it this way. Oh, I remember now. He got married and stayed in this town, in that little town of Kedan. Okay, so he probably married a local girl. And probably he was, uh, I think, he... I'm, I can only tell you the way I understand it. The local Rav was this guy who used to write in the papers all the rest of it. He must have taken him in and sort of initiated him into that world. Uh, there's no question that our hero had, what, 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 I'm trying to think how to put it in the right way, the masculine tendencies. I don't mean that in the from way. I mean anti-from way because he's super from. 
But in other words, uh, not everybody's into Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. Uh, anybody who's listening to this podcast, by definition, is not into just Gemara, Gemara, Gemara. You see? You could be the firmest person in the world, but you're also interested in Jewish history. See my point? See my point? And so, he, our hero clearly was a guy who was from, who must have been fascinated by Muscular literature, especially the newspapers, which bring you the news and the opinions. Must have been outraged at everything that he reads, but he reads it. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Because he's fascinated with it. And uh, therefore, he turns into a person that actually knows the world that I call it very well, even though he's from. You hear what I just said? And Derek Agav, by reading and studying all this, you end up um, having a very good command of the Hebrew language. Because in Lotion Kodesh days, Hebrew language. Because the Haskalah was a Hebrew movement, not Yiddish. That's why it was always very narrow. It was not for the masses, contrary to what people think. The Haskalah was a Hebrew language phenomenon. And most Frumis couldn't write Hebrew very well. You know, still is the case. But, you know, some did. And Haskalah, a lot of them would be uh, really turned on by the Moscow literature, even though, as I tell you again and again and again, that doesn't mean that they weren't from, because a lot of them were doing that out of outrage. Now, uh, our hero, as you say, lived in this town, Kidan, but then eventually moved in 1870, so I guess he was 32 years old, to Kovna. Now, Kovna was a, a growing city, uh, and uh, the Jewish population was increasing. That means the economy was good. And so he probably moved out of a little town where there's no economic future whatsoever. At 32, he's probably a father of several children. And there's no future from his hometown. And so instead, he moved to what you hope is a big new metropolis by the standards of Lithuania in the 19th century and maybe find Mazel there. Now, here's the funny thing. Here's, here's the interesting thing that happened. When he came to, he was 32 years old. So... Um, Musical Khan Inspector was already robbed there for, for six years. He became the Rob in Kovna in 1864, and the only one in 1870. So, uh, let's put it this way. Nobody knows, at least I don't know, how the two of them met. Obviously, he went and drew them to the rabbi. And within a short time, it became clear to both men, especially Musical Khanan, that... This guy and me would be a, a good shidduch, even though we're not the same at all. And he took him to be his personal secretary. Why do I say he's a good shidduch? Rabbi Zilkan Inspector, who I spoke about in, in, uh, long ago, I think, although that's a big subject, you can always do a second. <laughs> Rabbi Zilkan Inspector was a gone, but he was a gamar, gamar, gamar guy. That's who he was. You know what I'm saying? Rabbi Zilkan Inspector was not a guy who read the newspapers on the side and stuff like that, uh, unless circumstances compelled. Uh, he was from his birth and, uh, you know, a natural guy to sit in the room and learn or sit in Paskin Shiloh and things like that. That was his uh, particular character. And it's interesting that somebody like him rose to such high positions in terms of big cities, which required him to be very active in local and beyond local politics of the Jews. But that's what, that's the very interesting story of his economic specter. Now, he himself realized that his, although his job and his increasing stature push him into a leadership position, it's not his uh, skill set. And so he did something very smart. He said to this guy, 
It's a uh, I mean, uh, he didn't use these words, obviously, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to make it easy for you. Look, I'm the gone, you're definitely not. Okay, fine. So, no, you're from Guy, from me, from no question. But in learning, it's nothing to talk about, of course. On the other hand, you're a Moscow, meaning you can't, you're an excellent writer, uh, you possess the ability to express yourself very, very well, uh, you follow from politics closely. For a guy living in Covenant, you know what's going on in the world more than most people, more than I do probably. And so I have a ton of correspondence that I get from people around the world because as years went by, years ago, inspectors, uh, reputation grew and grew, even though he didn't chase it. And uh, people are writing from all over the world. And the only, uh, what shall I say, it's, it's too much for me to handle. And the only stuff he's interested to personally write are Shalos and Shubas, things like that. That he doesn't need a secretary for. But when people write from other towns, uh, other Abonim, from overseas, about questions that have to do with Hashkafa, with politics, or maybe just the run-of-the-mill stuff, can you, write, can, you, can you write me a letter to support we're raising money for a mikvah somewhere, or trying to raise money for yeshiva, you know, that kind of thing, uh, which grew by year by year. So uh, I need somebody to handle all that correspondence. Uh, which means, in Lamaisa, that uh, if somebody's writing to, to a Bissachon inspector from England, if it's a Shiloh, Bissachon inspector will write it himself. It's a you know, write Shiloh's and Shiloh's. If it's about something other than strictly a Shiloh, Lipschitz, you write it, you, you write it up. You're a good writer, better than me. And, you know, I'll, I'll look it over, and if it's right, I'll sign it and, and go on. And you keep a record of it, because I want to have a, a secretariat. I want things organized. And so you keep a track of all the correspondence. And that's what they did. And that's, and in that way, this obscure guy who was, as I would say before, a Haredi Moscow, obscure guy, uh, leaped to the top of the firm world. Because by being the right-hand man or the personal secretary of the Godelador, that automatically puts you at the top of everybody. You know what I'm saying? No, you went from a, 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 a complete anonymity, obscurity, uh, to a position where everybody knew. You now, when you're dealing with a Zikolachan inspector, it was a big person. Now we're dealing with the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. These were the peak years of his reputation and career. Uh, unless it's a straightforward Shiloh, uh, you've got to deal with his secretary, as is the case with all great men. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, All great people world leaders, political leaders, they have secretaries and chiefs of staff and stuff like that to run their operation. Uh, I'm talking about the correspondence and to stay in, uh, on, on, you know, and, and, and to keep the paper flow going. Now, that's who he became. Now, if that's all he was, that would be an interesting story, but it wouldn't, you know, he, he, he wouldn't end up in, in, in anybody's historical knowledge and uh, it would be like that. It would just be, you know, a, a datum. But Yaakov Levi Lipschitz was, and turned himself into being, not simply the guy who keeps track of all the correspondence for Yitzchak and writes up those kind of letters, as I said before, but he considered, precisely because he was super aware of the Haskalah and all the rest, because he was a Haredi Moscow, so he was an anti-Moscow, which itself is a Moskilic, a concept. Does that make sense? An anti, a counter Moscow, that's a modernish thing. A regular old-fashioned rabbi in Lithuania, 
barely knew even what the Haskell is, and it, it was no gay to him, you know? So he lived his life with, with not doing it. Somebody who's anti-Moscow, that's a modern concept. And Richard Conan Spector, frankly, was an old-fashioned traditionalist type of guy. So he wasn't anti-Moscow, except that really he was. Really he was. Because once he was a Roman Covenant, he saw what's going on. But he was in a very interesting and delicate situation. We're dealing here with Russia, and we're not dealing with another country in the 19th century. Sam Serenfield Hirsch could scream and write against people all he wants, because where he lived, there was freedom of press, um, certainly in religious matters, and for a long time, even political matters, believe it or not. And so, Hirsch wanted to write against a reform or something like that. He could do whatever he wants. You understand? Uh, if people in Hungary wanted to write against reform, they could do whatever they want. In Russia, you can't do what you want. Any little thing can get you the attention of the police, and then you can be in Goktatsars. At the end of the day, Yusuf Inspector was not even officially the rabbi. If he pushes his thing and gets anybody angry, he could be kicked out of town. Wasn't even the rove. Not officially, officially, then it robbed me Tom. You understand? And anyway, nobody wanted to deal with the Russian government just for burping to Kosenyi, Siberia. So, you don't want to deal with that. Okay? And so, let me give you an, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. The richy riches in the Russian Empire, the Jewish ones, were like this. They're orthodox, meaning, uh, that's the wrong word to use, I shouldn't have used that word. They're traditional, uh, it's not Reformed Judaism. They keep, you know, the mitzvahs more or less, you know, like many people, uh, especially like many rich people. But they themselves think they're so richy rich, so they think they can see things better, especially vis-a-vis the government, than the rabbis, who, after all, are uh, stick in the mud. All they know is the Gomar, Gomar, Gomar. They're Dalai Lama. You know, they, 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 the rabbis not worthy of respect. Now, to the richy riches, who many of them lived in St. Petersburg, and uh, he got rich on uh, Russian government and army contracts, like Gunsberg family and others, Polakov, Guts, there were a whole bunch of them. These are the, the tiny elite of rich Jews in Russia who are very Europeanized. So it's tricky, you know. They mean well for the fellow Jews. On the other hand, they want the fellow Jews to modernize more. And um, therefore they would say like this, we should start a, a campaign to introduce uh, public schools for Jewish kids all across Russia, the Society for the Enlightenment of the Jews, it was called. Uh, now, What's the Yitzhak Hunter Spectre or somebody like going to say? He says, I'm against it. You're against it. Then they'll tell on you. Either they'll tell on you uh, B'mezid or they'll tell on you B'shogig, like what the story with Shem Ben Yochai, you know? Told on B'shogig. And uh, you'll be in trouble. You'll be, you'll be kicked out and, and worse. And so you can't officially oppose them. You, you follow what I'm saying? Even though you hate it. That was a very delicate situation for a communal rabbi in the Russian Empire in the 19th century. The Nitziv can't come out and go against them. Uh, Yisrael Salantar can't come out and go against them. The Rizal can't come out and go This This was the reality, you see? Now, uh, but he doesn't want it, and so he's going to use Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz to try to lobby behind the scenes to frustrate these plans. You know, maybe he can uh, write a letter to the right person to block it, or win over very discreetly people to see things in a different way. Best of all, maybe can bribe 
a Russian official, that's not too hard, you know, and they can bury their project in a drawer. Uh, these kind of things happen all the time. All during the 70s and 80s, the, w w with good intentions, but stupidly, the richy rich people in, 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 in the, the richest Jews in the Russian Empire try to introduce, uh, you know, modern Orthodox Judaism, conservative Judaism, things like this, without even realizing what they were doing. They wanted to switch the yeshivas to a rabbinical seminary, and that'll be something that they thought the Russian government will respect, and that'll raise the, the um, prestige of the rabbis, and that'll be good for Judaism in Russia. Of course, what it would do would be turn out a bunch of police spies who were disguised as rabbis, but they didn't see it that way. And so, in the very delicate politics that had to be played by the first-level Rabbonim, again, I, I mentioned people like Rizalon Spector, of course, and uh, Dinitziva Volozhin, and, um, you know, they're all, they're all, I don't want to go through all the names, whoever were the important, influential rabbis of the bigger type who knew what's going on in the world, uh, they had a very uh, um, tight rope to walk. Let's put it that way. Uh, now, Yisrael Salanta was exactly from this type. He, he did not choose to be a community rabbi. He could have been, but he never wanted to. And he really wanted to move behind the scenes. But I can tell you right now, whenever anything happened that was either caused by the Russian government or by the Jews, the rich Jews, these guys would have to secretly communicate, I repeat, secretly communicate with each other. They couldn't have any public assemblies because it's forbidden by law. They couldn't come out openly against any of these new projects. They had to find out who do you bribe, who do you influence, uh, things like that. And uh, during this time, in 1868 and 1870, actually, uh, not the Richie Ridges, but a left-wing, uh, what shall I say, a left-wing uh, um, Kitsoni, you know, element of the Haskalah actually came out against the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, they want to re reform and, and issue a new Shulchan Aruch. This is called the uh, Lillian Bloom episode of the late 1860s. And that means that I mean, there's a whole, I forgot what it was called, Noblos Talmud or something like that, where they started writing us, look at how many dumb things are in the Shulchan Aruch. Meaning, they're not Talmudic, they're added in by the Ramah or somebody like that. Extra Chumras here, there, and the other. Especially in Kashas. Now, what do we need this for unless we should reform the Jewish religion this is not Reformed Judaism from Germany. This is Reformed Judaism from within Lithuania, from ex-Yeshiva guys who now were alienated from their um, you know, ancestral uh, experience and heritage. And uh, the reason I'm telling you this is this particularly, when it was a frontal attack on the Gemara, on the Shulchan Aruch, this created uh, a anger and energy within the from world to make a from newspaper, which was like a landmark, called Halavanon. Uh, you couldn't publish it in Russia because there's too much censorship. But they published it in Paris. But all the Rabbanim in Russia, of the type that I'm speaking about, who were more politically aware, who were um, uh, able to write uh, journalistic articles, this is where they started putting out their stuff and articulating what I would call today an orthodox position, orthodox consciousness. Which it, in orthodox, I mean us versus them. That, you know, let's understand that uh, Russian Jewry, Eastern European Jewry, is now composed of different elements. There are these people out there in different groups, like the left-wing Haskalah, like the Richie Riches, like uh, somebody's Mishamadim and other people like that, and some bad Jews who simply are out to mess over the whole Judaism. 
and uh, let's not make light of them. And on the other hand, we have all these masses, millions of Jews, who are still Shomer Shabbos, they still believe in the Torah, but they have no self-consciousness of being part of anything from. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and in this world of writing these articles and trying to give expression to uh, from ideas in a modern tone, and I don't mean, you know, in a, in a which, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word, uh, a glib way. I'm talking about in a thoughtful way. Um, this starts with people like Yaakov Leibelevich. He was at the very epicenter of this whole business. All the articles in the Hall of Unknown, and some of the other newspapers that came there uh, later after Yusuf Unspector died, they made one called Hapelis. Uh, these were papers. This is something new. You're using a new technology, which we call the newspaper, uh, which is je- which is associated with non-from and anti-from stuff. Try to use it to issue a from perspective, which itself to argue a from perspective within the world of Jewish values is itself something new because it used to be taken for granted that from and Jewish are the same. But now these people are recognizing by creating a special uh, newspaper and sets of papers and things like that, uh, that the Jewish world is no longer the same. And Humpty Dumpty's falling, can't be put back together again. Jewish and from are not identical. There's the from part of the Jews, and then there's the others, <laughs> you see? And frankly, uh, the young people all throughout these decades were hemorrhaging out of Frumkite. Uh, you know, it was a slow de- process, and nobody knew how to stop it. Nobody knew how to stop it. All through the, the 1800s, the 30s, 40s, 50s, excuse me, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and so forth, I'm not exaggerating, more and more young people left. More and more young people left. It was constant hemorrhaging. Uh, and this was the crisis that people like Lipschitz are trying to respond to. Now, he's a con inspector, can't come out and do this. He doesn't write any articles. He has to be seen as above the fray because the non-firm respected him, the masculine respected him. And in order to keep what he had and to keep the status quo from getting worse, he had to um, I don't know, pretend it's not the right word, but I'm going to use it. He had to pretend that he's the rabbi equally of all the elements of the community, and, uh, and therefore he's not taking sides on these ideological issues. Isn't that funny? So to, in, later, in a later generation, it would have been a question. It would not have been a question. Uh, but in his time, it was a question. And therefore, all the dirty work to argue against the non-from, to articulate a separatist orthodox position, he left to his secretary uh, to do. And often the secretary did it under a pen name, or he got other people to write the articles for him, or better yet, he wrote the article and have another guy sign his name on it. And these are all from the circle, as we would say today, Ritzikon Inspector, who had to constantly maintain this facade of being above the fray, of he's just all positive, he loves everybody, and he, he did love everybody. I mean, he believed in Avdus Yisrael, but he wasn't unaware of the dangers that are uh, out there from elements that are trying to move the Jews into an anti-from uh, realm, and I'm talking about the masses. So isn't this funny? So it turns out that this person, who's no rabbi, no big Tom Chacham or anything like that, I mean, he was Tom Chacham, you know, but nobody, uh, you know, the Gaonisha type, uh, found a, a, a very good niche for himself um, as the secretary of Yitzhak Inspector, 
way beyond simply handling the correspondence. You understand? Way beyond that. And he, therefore, was, you might say, his political secretary. Many, any kind of political question came up, and it came up all the time in Jewish life in Russia. I'm talking about from politics and anti from politics. Yitzhak Khan immediately said like this, all right, let's bring Yaakov here. What do you, what do you say? You know, how do, we, how, how do we, the two of them together would plot how to respond to these challenges. Which is just interesting. Over the course of the time, therefore, these 25, 26 years, these were together with he became a very influential and important person. Okay? And it's a perfect example of the possibilities of secondary intelligence, as I said before. And clearly, we are dealing over here with the beginnings of a modern, uh, a modern, how should I put it, orthodox, not modern orthodox, a modern, comma, orthodox uh, uh, a state of mind, self-consciousness. <laughs> For example, I've, I mentioned this before. Today, the average Haredi Jew in Israel, I mean, it's inconceivable that they'll vote for a Chilini party, right? They definitely won't vote for Ben-Gurion, but in 1948, Ben-Gurion got a lot of uh, uh, from votes because there still were a lot of these traditionalist-type Jews, and they said, I'm Jewish, he's Jewish, I'm religious, he's not religious, but I like what he's doing in other areas. You understand? Today, maybe we have too much of this, possibly. Today, the from Jew in America, elsewhere, especially the Haredi Jew, but even the modern Orthodox, the from Jew feels himself like a part of a certain shavit. You understand? I'm not, I mean, I live in Baltimore. It's 100,000 Jews almost. But I'm a member of the from population of Baltimore. You, you see what I'm saying? I know people outside my community. I have relations and friendship with others. But fundamentally, I identify with my little tribe. The person who's living in Muncie, I identify with their tribe. Uh, now, I'm not, I, I repeat, I'm not saying it's a good thing. There's good and bad in it. But this is what's happened in the modern era. And because of this, because of the cultivation of the separate identity of the from, you have a from subculture. You have magazines that cater totally to the from. You know, when I was a kid, all the magazines, Jewish magazines, were not from. They didn't cater to the from at all. We got them because they were Jewish, you know. Uh, they had, you know, trade stuff and uh, summer camps that were, you know, completely un- not Jewish. I mean, the, everything was designed around the non-from readership. Uh, that's what it was. And you were, if you were an Orthodox Jew, you knew this is what it is. You know, the mainstream. I, I don't have my own culture. I'm part of the broader American Jewish culture, um, and certainly at the level of, you know, what shall I say, wider area. You know, there, there's just no no way for my group to express itself. And then that changed. You understand? It happened in my lifetime. Now you have, obviously, the reverse. Uh, because of other mega trends, the non-from Jewish culture in America has collapsed. All the magazines are gone. But you have the Mishpacha and the Ami and all this other stuff. Uh, 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 and when I was young, you had the Jewish press and Jewish Observer and so forth, you know, catering very successfully to an entire subculture with a separate consciousness. Yaakov Levi Lipschitz is one of the main figures, even though he's not known, in the formation of this Eastern European Jewry in the late 1800s. That's why I think it's so interesting. And uh, therefore, the whole phenomenon of from journalism itself, which has become, you know, never existed. Obviously, there was no such thing as from newspapers, from journalism. And so, how was uh, Torah values uh, 
you know, created by Rabbanim, however they did it. All of a sudden, you have something called a journalist. The journalist is more eloquent and more verbose than the Rabbanim. And then you have the big question, which we suffer with down till today, which is, who has the day in the from world? Who's the one that makes up these policies? Is it the Gedolim or the journalists? And, uh, you know, because they're the ones writing the stuff that people read. This, again, goes back to Yaakov Alibi Lipschitz and his circle. Now, he was friends through his position as a law inspector with all these rabbis, you know, Alexander Moshe Lapidus and, the, the you know, Abdul Kash Shapiro. You, you name it. I mean, he was, the, the, the Minsker got all of me. He knew everybody. And even overseas, the chief rabbi of England, of France, of Sam Sarevel Hirsch, and Hildesheimer, all the, he was in correspondence with them because he's the secretary of the Zilhan Inspector. And he was able to invoke their help because, in other words, he had a network. You understand? He had a network. And because he had this, and his international network, so he was able to, to help things get done from behind the scenes always. He never puts his, his face forward because who's he? He's a nobody. But behind, moving behind the scenes, he was a somebody. Um, the best example, and maybe the finest hour, is um, it, it happened in uh, 1881. And I actually spoke about this. I gave a lecture series a couple years ago in the summer because the Tsar Alexander was assassinated in 1881. And all of a sudden, uh, pogroms broke out all across a big section of uh, southern Ukraine in Russian Empire, southern Russia. A huge bunch of pogroms. People were killed. It was terrible. A major crisis hit. And uh, uh, what do you call it? And the Richie Riches, you know, tried to kiss even more harder the uh, rear end of the new Russian authorities. Didn't do any good. Didn't do any good. Uh, and what are the firms supposed to do? Now, by the way, I just want to give an example. When all these riots are going on, so Baron Gunsberg, the richest Jew, brings all the Jewish leaders uh, to St. Peter's to have a conference. Almost all of them were not from. He invited Rizikon Inspector because they considered him not from. I mean, they knew he's from, but he's he's a big rabbi with a broad view. You understand? And the question was, what should the, what should be the future of Russian Jewry? Now, the smart one said like this, get the heck out of Russia. And that's how several million Jews moved to America and places like that. Some said, like Shmuel Mulliver, go to, uh, what do you call it? Go to Palestine. Right? But that, to the, which by the way, looking back from perspective was A, the right thing to do. B, the Russian government didn't care because they want the Jews out. And no, but the rich, she rich, as they said like this, oh, it'll look like you're not patriotic to Russia until we should discourage emigration from Russia uh, abroad. And Rabbi Zikon Inspector had to go along. That's what I'm trying to tell you. His position was one, he can't come out against anything. And so he said, oh, don't move to America. Oh, don't move to Palestine. No, no, no. Stay here in Russia. It's a patriotic thing to do. But it's only because, you know, he's under pressure because of his position. And everybody knows that's not what he really thinks. And, uh, you know, the real, if you want to know what he really thinks, either you know him personally or he talked to you, talk to Yaakov Leibniz. More importantly, that, the thing I wanted to talk about was the Russian government wanted to cover up all mention of the pogroms. Uh, I just saw, by the way, that Japan still denies that they did the rape of Nanking in 1937. You know, denial, denial, denial. This is what the countries do. And so they were destroying the Jewish communities and killing people. The police were not interfering. It was terrible. And they don't want the word to get out. And it's Russia. Even in the 1880s, they had a pretty good censorship. You couldn't get it out. Uh, Yaakov Alibi Lipschitz, 
he conspired. I mean, it's really his idea. Since he had this correspondence network, Rizal Khan went, went along with it. They composed these letters, which are written in code, and any from Jew can decode. Uh, it was called Hey and Papia Shluch Yisrael. And he got the word out to the chief rabbi of France, of England, to Hirsch in, in Frankfurt and places like that. And they said, get this stuff in the international press. And they did. And a whole, all hell broke loose. And there were public gatherings in London and in Paris and places like that. And then they criticized the Russian government for allowing all to pogroms. I have a great uh, uh, cartoon somewhere, one of the books I own, where the London Times has a picture of Pharaoh uh, looking over, the ghost of Pharaoh is looking at the new czar, who was very anti-Semitic, Alexander III. He's beating up a Jew. And the Pharaoh says, don't, don't go there. I, don't go there. Take it from me. It doesn't work. Uh, and this was from a Geisha newspaper. So I'm just trying to tell you, gave Russia a black eye, where they deserve 10 black eyes. And the pogroms is one of the things that helped the pogroms die away. Now, life didn't turn good for the Jews, but specifically, the violence died down. And uh, nobody ever figured out how it happened. And uh, only years later, when, um, what do you call it? In his old days, when he, he wrote his autobiography, which I'll talk about a little bit later if I remember, uh, he, he, he revealed this. And he even said, by the way, if you're interested, I first came across this when I was very young. There was this book by, uh, what's her name? Lucy DeVillewitz. They used to be taught in colleges. Uh, the Jewish, the Golden Hind, the Golden Tradition, something like that. It was pretty good. And um, she did little pieces from all sorts of Eastern European jewelry and translated in English, including from, and uh, her selection was not bad, and she had from Yakov Lushitz about this incident where they uh, beat the Russian censors using the From Network. And it looked like they were just writing Jewish stuff, and really they were um, writing political things and getting the word out. Like his finest hour. And he says that he met Manashevitz, I think it was, you know, from the Manashevitz Masa. And, you know, and, and uh, Manashevitz said to Rizal who's doing all this? How'd they get the word out? Of, how'd they beat the Russian censors? And, you know, Rizal says, here, talk to my guy. And he was shocked. He said, I could never believe a from Jew would have any kind of common sense to pull something like that off. And uh, that's what I'm trying to say. The story is actually very, very interesting. Now, um, in the starting, one of the reactions to the pogroms of 1881, there were many. First of all, the Moscow looked like stupid. They said, oh, Russia's going to get better and better. We should integrate into Russia. Now the Russians just told you, please, drop dead. You know, and it'll never change. So the Haskalah was like sort of, uh, what's the word, delegitimated. And caused a whole crisis in Russian Haskalah. I'll leave that alone for the moment. Uh, but Zionism took off. Now, this is before Herzl. Chovavetzion. Okay? This movement that was founded all over Russia and places like that to start to, to, to start moving Jews to Israel. Uh, very small scale. They should set up a couple of farms, things like that. Uh, and from day one, this is in 1881, 1882, from day one, the question was, is it going to be a from operation? Is it going to be a non-from operation? How is this going to work? This new Chovetzian movement. And in Russia, uh, the Frum, first of all, had a lot of lack of self-confidence, but for a whole bunch of reasons, it turned out that they said, this is something that has to be a Claudius Roll type thing, and consequently we need a combination, a, a shift between the Frum and the not-Frum. That's a, 
The Chovetzim was founded on that basis. If the shift was between the, the from and the not from, the guy who actually wrote the uh, programmatic uh, article, uh, Auto Emancipation, was uh, this very unfrom guy from Odessa, uh, Dr. Pinsker. Uh, and he came together with Shmuel Mulliver and these other guys. They, they made the uh, Chovetzim, and the idea was that you start, at, you start small, but then hopefully you build up. All across Eastern Europe, this should be found in every town, a Chovetzim society, and they should raise money and then send people over and start, uh, they didn't think of kibbutzim with them, that's a 20th century thing. But you know, Moshavot and that sort of business. Um, now it was a nickel and dime, never really gone anywhere. To the degree that anything happened in the 1880s, because Rothschild bankrolled it. But, you know, these guys were the ones that got to Rothschild. So whatever the case is, you now have an important Jewish project, very important Jewish project, Eretz Israel. Uh, and it's going to be a project from and not from. Uh, now, uh, and that's what it was. The question, of course, is like this. Who called the shots, really, at the end of the day? Is, is it a... Is it in an ideal world, you'd say the following. It should be a from operation and get money from the not from. You know what I'm saying? The way these yeshivas were built in America. You know, every yeshiva, including one in Baltimore... It's built with not from money. Uh, that's how it goes. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm not saying to be cynical. There's nothing wrong with that. Any Jew, who uh, he or she, feels like contributing to a Torah cause, what's the problem? It's good. It's good for them. It's good for us. And you'd say like this, that is the proper hierarchical relationship. I should have yeshiva and try to make people from. You who are not from, you should give me money to do that. Because what I'm really saying is, in a nice way, I have contempt for your type of Judaism. You're not from, so basically from a Judaic perspective, you're a loser. Maybe economically and financially you're not a loser, but from a Judaic perspective, you're a loser. But the most productive thing you can do with your money is to give it to me to advance the cause of from Judaism. You're like that. Now, what if it's the other way around? <laughs> okay? What if it's the other way around? What if I told you, I, the, you, you frummies are, 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 are useless? Uh, I'm, a non, I'm building up a non-from thing, but you should help me because it's good for everybody, uh, whether you realize it or not. Then the from said, whoa, whoa, that's a different story. The Chovetzian turned out to be that type. Now, it's, I'm making something very complex. It's a, it, 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 you know, I'm oversimplifying, but nevertheless, that's, that is the oversimplification. It went in that kind of direction, and... Uh, even though there were important rabbis on here and all that, no question about it. And there were a lot of fights about it. There's a book, uh, Parallels Meet, I think it's called, by Professor Ehud Luz. You can read about this if you're interested. And, uh, but it became pretty clear that the non-from were the ones that have the daya. And, uh, and the left-wing non-from were increasingly prominent, like Hanam, who was a militant anti-from, militant atheist. Uh, it, it looked like things were going in a bad direction. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all this is the following. This is proto-Zionism. This is the Zionism before Herzl created the World Zionist Organization, which took things to an entirely new level in terms of international seriousness and organization. And as you know, the, the World Zionist Organization that Herzl started worked <laughs> because within 50 years he had a state of Israel. Whatever you attribute it to, but it worked. The Chovetzian was a nickel and dime operation. It was not, was not going to go anywhere. But having said that, 
Oh, here, let me make a, a break here for a second. Yeah, excuse me, I had to do something. Um, so I was saying about the Chovei Sion, again, which is a movement for the last uh, 15 years of the life of Ritzel Khan Inspector. Now, uh, he had, let's put it this way, uh, many Rabbonim, for the best of reasons, uh, said this is a good thing for everybody to get involved in. What's wrong? There's no mitzvah keeping Jews in Russia. They'll move them to Israel. Why should they move to America? Uh, the Chavez was not political in the sense that they're already envisioning a Jewish state. Maybe in a hundred years, you know, like that, something like that. But the Jewish community in Israel itself to move Jews to Israel itself is a good thing, and to move them within the context of Jews. No, it's not coming in to be uh, French or British or Turkish, but as Jews. This itself was a... Uh, that's a firm thing, you know? You know, that's all. Now, the problem is that the Daya, the people who were actually running the operation, they were okay. They were, further, they're not from. And they were okay with... How should I put it? The development slowly, very slowly, of an arm from culture in Israel. And I use the word culture advisedly because what, the, what happened now was that the Russian Haskalah, having been discredited in Russia, reinvented itself as cultural Zionism. Uh, I repeat, this is before Herzl. So the development of a cultural Zionism, it was the same guys who were telling everybody what to do in Russia and how to reconstruct Judaism to fit into Russia better. Now they said, well, we were wrong about that, but here's what we should do as far as Palestine is concerned. Uh, we should construct or reconstruct a new Jewish culture, a new Jewish culture, which at its most radical end was a Hanaam, and that's a completely secular one, which means you don't believe in God, to be clear about. Uh, and these are the developments that are slowly having in Israel. Although there were many from people that moved on the Chavik and set up from farms and from Moshevot, that too. That both. Now, uh, how should I put it? We, Yaakov Alevi Lipschitz watched these developments very closely uh, because he was, uh, what's the right word, a Moscow watcher? Is that the right word? No, was very sensitive to all that was going on. He read all their newspapers. He read other magazines and articles. He knew these guys. Uh, it's like the FBI's expert on communism. You know what I mean? That's what he was. And he said, you know, this is not a good thing. Now, uh, the physical inspector joined the Kohetzion. Uh, but he also kept Yaakov Levelishitz as his secretary. And so for the 15 years, he had a very, very interesting phenomenon in which, what does the Covenant Rov hold? Does he hold from Kohetzion or he doesn't hold from him? Well, he's a member. Yeah, but his main guy is always trying to uh, write secret articles or correspond with other rabbis in the neighborhood of Kohanan against the Kohetzion, or at least against the, the tendencies that would allow, uh, you know, uh, the development of this because it's, it's moving in a not good direction. Now, you know, the glass is half empty or glass, the glass is half full. You could always say the glass is half full. They're moving Jews to Israel. Uh, they're, they're, they're developing a Jewish culture. Um, you know, Rothschild's money was necessary, so they had to include him in. He's not so from, but he's not, you know, uh, atheist or anything like that. Uh, on the other hand, what they call the Odessa Committee, people like Pinsk or Hanam, they're not moving things in the right direction. Uh, what, does he use a hold of this? He doesn't hold of this. 
as is very famous, let me put it this way. In, so they developed among the Rabbonim and the Fromis in Russia two groups. Uh, what we would call today Agudah Mizrahi, even though neither existed at the time. Those who thought this is a good thing, those who thought it's a bad thing. Uh, those who thought it's a good thing, I already did this when I talked about uh, the Mulliver, you know, Shmuel Mulliver. There were a lot of good arguments in favor of it. Uh, why should the Jews stay behind in Russia and, and, and get killed? Why should the Jews stay behind in Russia and be subjected to all this anti-Semitism? And uh, when the younger generation is becoming more and more unfrom all the time anyway. See? At least you move to Israel, there's a better chance that they'll stay from. The, there are very good arguments against it, right? That, you know, this is a situation, like I said before, where the renowned from are running the show, and they are, uh, you know, uh, in a very insidious way, using the from to undermine the whole from position. Bishop Golan Speck is in the middle. As you know, he gave the famous Hector in 1887 for the Shemitah, that they could sell the land for the Shemitah, in certain ways, not exactly. In other words, you could do Drabonas, not the Rises. But whatever the case is, he certainly did a very pro Chovetzian type sock. Um, and, and by the way, the Nitziv, the Rashi Velashim was also in the Chovetzian. There were, there were many big rabbis that were. Uh, and here you have the other side, which is the people like Yaakov Leblipschitz, who's always whispering in their ears, not incorrectly, he says, listen, you're looking at the glass being half full, but don't notice that the glass is half empty, and maybe it's going to be three quarters and totally empty. And watch out for this. As we, and he was very good at what he did, Lipschitz. And uh, there were a lot of things that the Chavitim wanted to do. He said he was going to do it. At the end, he didn't do it because he was advised by Yaakov Levi not to do it. And so this drove the Zionists and the Moschilim in general crazy because they said like this. Here's a nice guy like Yitzchak He's got this real son of a gun working for him um, uh, who's who's his, his evil influence on him. We don't know why he keeps him on there. Mr. Khan is a tzaddik. There's other guys like a politician, a from politician. And he's trying to be like a handler, you know what I mean? To uh, control the gutter and all the rest of it. And there's a whole literature of this. A whole literature uh, of early Zionist writers, including Mizrahi and people like that. In which they, I mean, you know, if you ever, uh, I didn't do this, but if you ever Google Yaakov Levi Lipschitz, if the Google is up to what it should be, you'll see a lot of reference to him in the classic old late 1800s, early 1900s Zionist and Maskil literature because they always say he's the gray eminence. And in general, let's put it this way, they didn't like him because he was good at what he did. Uh, he could write the anonymous article or, or ghost write the article that would expose what they're trying to do. He could, uh, you know, zero in on the uh, the Makamah turf, you know, the weak, the, the weak part in their argument and show it's a lie. Uh, yeah, you know, he was just too good at what he's doing and presenting what you and I today would call a Haredi perspective. You understand? Now, uh, people said, well, what do you have this guy for? And Yitzhak never said anything, but the bottom line is, he obviously wanted him. Clearly, these two people were not the same, but it's like David and Yoav. They, they, clearly, they said, we're a good match. You understand? And neither side liked it, meaning that the, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say neither side, the left wing definitely didn't like it. The right wing liked it. Um, and I have the impression that kept him on because he said like this, you know, I'm so much under so much pressure from everybody. You have to understand, Kovna, Lithuania, but these places in general had a lot of non-from and semi-from members. 
and you couldn't just come out openly and, 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 and oppose them, even though people you knew you opposed, you, you got to tread carefully, even while you want to oppose them. And so you have to have a, a, an agent or, or, or an arm that allows you to do this uh, in, in, um, in ways you can get away with. Because the same Yaakov Leibniz was helping uh, uh, frustrate uh, many of the projects of the Askala and of the left wing of the Chavetzim. Uh, he was in favor of what we would call today uh, the beginnings of the Kolel movement, because he was back the uh, Kolel, uh, Kovna Kolel, which was the project of Cyril Salanter, even though that Kovna Kolel didn't turn out exactly the way they expected it would. That's the old Shmuz for something else. And he was, in general, trying to uh, come up with something that they were not able to come up with, which was, what's a good orthodox response um, to all these issues that are popping up now? Uh, people like Ritzel Hanan and the others, they worked and they grew up and they lived entirely within a traditionalist framework. Uh, the orthodoxness of it, the self-consciousness, expressed itself in their hidden attempts, sometimes successful, in frustrating the bad projects of the non-front. I hope that's not too complicated for you to understand. But this guy certainly moved from just being a stomach journalist in a Velterine, or somebody who writes in uh, Yated, whatever, into um, a mover and shaker behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. And, uh, in, and as I said before, it's like somebody works for the FBI as an expert in communism. He became uh, the super expert in all the ins and outs of the whole Zionist phenomenon, as he understood it, uh, from a negative perspective. Notice he saw all the bad things in there that a lot of the others were not aware of. And he maintained, because he was Vizikhan's secretary, and besides that, he had a personality of his own, and people knew he's an expert in this kind of stuff. So if you ever had any kind of questions about, if you were a, a Rav in Eastern Europe, you had any questions about this new thing I'm reading about, is that from or not from, you wrote to him. You get it? You know, uh, uh, privately. And he would write you back and explain the whole business. So it's like I would say today, I read this new item. Is this, uh, you know, is this kosher or is it not kosher? Um, is this a from thing or not from thing? Is this a communist front? Is this something else? What is it? I can't tell. And he would say, well, I, I know. And it's this, this, and that, and that. And, uh, and people would say, oh, okay. Good to know. I was going to join him. I was going to support him. Thanks to what you told me. Now I see what's what, what's really happening. So you have to be an indefatigable writer, and that's who he was. He was a natural-born secretary. A guy like him could I'm not exaggerating. A guy like him could write 100 letters a day. You see? And by the way, he's an excellent writer. He was my skill. I guess he's saying. He was a one, he's one of the great... This is going to sound funny what I'm saying. Uh, he's one, in my opinion, that's all I ever give you, he's one of the great writers of the Russian Haskalah. He's the anti-Haskalah, but he's one of the great writers of he, he has a wonderful Hebrew style, and he gets right to the point, and he uses the right amount of flower Hebrew, not too much, uh, you know, in, in nice doses, and I, it's, it's just uh, cute to read. That's all I can say. Now, the, 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 the problem for a guy like him was his whole position depended on this fact that he had the personal favor that was connected with the most important rabbi. When Rizal died in 1896, he lost his power base. You understand? Lost his power base. Now, Rizal Khan was, was uh, succeeded by his son, uh, Tzvi Hirsch Rabinowitz. 
There was a big time with Chacham and all the rest. So he wasn't Yitzchak Chana though, but he. But you know, he was a Chasha rabbi. But like the father, didn't have a, an orthodox program. You know, what what do you do to invigorate and stop the hemorrhaging? Uh, interestingly, a phenomenon was happening at that time, and that's the yeshiva movement, which was starting in the 1880s, really. Um, the thing is, the yeshiva movement, in its dynamic uh, uh, um, aspect, dynamic phase, was a musr. You get it? Uh, you know, Slobodka and the things that came out of Slobodka. These are the guys that are creating a distinctive yeshiva culture, as we would call today. Now, uh, in doing so, the yeshivas, without wanting to or anything like that, they're creating their own distinct subculture, as you and I are familiar today. The process was beginning, that nobody planned on, in which the yeshivas is supplanting the kehillah as the locus of from Judaism in Eastern Europe, in, in Lithuanian part anyway, and that the yeshiva world is becoming its own world to sort of, as I say before, replace the regular from world. Because the regular from world was decadent, it was uh, falling apart, and these new yeshivas, which are very small in number, they were creating a, um, an artificial uh, culture, uh, a world of their own. And so to use the dumb terminology that you'll understand, it's not the Rav anymore, it's the Rosh Hashiva. Okay? Now, Ruzikul Hanach Specter, his son, elders, they came from the world of the Rabbonim. Uh, the main person should be the Rav. Uh, the yeshiva is a separate commu- uh, institution on the side. But things were changing now. And uh, especially after this, the Ruzikul Hanach Specter, uh, so they started what they called the Pulmas Hamusser, which means people started publishing things where, in which they said like this, the Musa Yeshiva itself, the Musa movement, is a new thing, it's a dangerous thing, and it's putting too much emphasis on the Musa, not enough on the learning. And somehow or other, I never understood 100% why, uh, but Yitzhak, uh, Yaakov Alevi Livshitz, after that, he became very involved in the poems of Musa. Uh, I can only surmise that he was friends with the Rabbanim type, with the three Hersha Benowitz and people like that. Uh, they didn't like the new trend I'm not really 100% sure why, what they thought that, I, I can only surmise that they really thought that somehow it was going to take Gamar down the tubes and put Musa in its place, which is the ostensible purpose for the Pumas on Musa. People are afraid the Musa is going too much. Uh, it's more than I'm saying now. There's a lot to the whole Pumas on Musa, but he was very involved in it, even though he's not a Barhaki. Like, what are you uh, I- interfering in something that, that literally is for Gedolim? But uh, being who he was, an excellent writer and a guy who works behind the scenes, he was able to be very part, very much part of, let me call it the conspiracy, even though that's not the right word, against the uh, Musarists. And um, look, I want to tell you something. If you're a rabbi, you hear that somebody, like the altar of Navarrete, it sounds like a nut, you know what I mean? From from their perspective. You know, his extreme hanogas, things like that. So uh, it's a very complicated story. It's happened in the 1890s. And Lips was very much part of that. Uh, he was 58 when Yitzhak Khanan died. So, you know, it's the wrong time of life. And he's trying to find a new career. I don't think he ever exactly found one, except that he already built up his own reputation among those who knew, as I say, the FBI's expert on heresy. 
You know, so if you wanted to know about unfrom things and the dangers they posted to the from world, he was the guy you wrote to. So he had a big network of his own. Uh, you know, to make money, he published a biography of Yitzhak Ochanan. It's interesting. Told us Yitzhak, if you ever seen it. It's, it's nice. Um, did one in Yiddish also. But what do you do now? And what he uh, concentrated on for the next 10 years or so, when he was still active, was um, dealing with what he saw as the new big danger, threatening from life in Russia. What is the new big danger? Is Zionism. Okay? Is Zionism. And he uh, was an important person in organizing the network among Drabonim to oppose Zionism. Beshita. Beshita. And they respected, like I said before, everybody respected his knowledge of, of, of heresy. You see? A little bit like Yaakov ended, isn't it? That everybody respected. And he corresponded indefatigably with all these gedolim, big rabbis and small rabbis all over the place. But the thing is like this. His whole world, I mean, he's a guy who grew up in the 1800s in the rabbinic world in Russia. It's a world in which, how do I make some, how do I fight something? I get a letter from a rabbi. You're not going to kill Zionism with a letter from a rabbi, but that's how he saw it. And so he put together, as a, in 1896, Taka, the year he used to go on, Inspector died. 1897 was the first Zionist Congress with Herzl. It was a big question in Russia. I've talked about it a little bit before. Pro-Zionism, anti-Zionism, should be in favor of it, not in favor of it. Unlike the Chovetzim, the Herzl Zionist movement was unequivocal. From day one, they said, we want a Jewish state. Get it? It's not about colonies. It's not about sending people to start another farm. We want to make a state. Do a state. What's the problem with that? And uh, this was like a shock. And he set up this World Zionist Congress, which I said I mentioned before, which which looked like it represents Kla Yisrael. Uh, now, the from world could have done it, but they never did. So they put together an organization which at least had the appearance of representing Kla Yisrael, and then going to the Goyim of the world and saying, we represent Kla Yisrael and give us Israel, and getting traction from the Goyim of the world. As I said before, Herzl you know, was taken in seriously. You see? So all this was seen, or could be seen, and was seen by Lipschitz and people like him as very dangerous and threatening business. This new Zionism just popped up out of nowhere, led by atheists who maybe take over the whole Yiddishkeit. And he saw it as, as, as something deadly. And especially in Russia, that was the main headquarters of the cultural Zionism. Cultural Zionism was atheist. The political Zionism was neutral in the subject of religion. But in Russia, the cultural Zionism was very atheist. I'm talking about Chaim Weizmann and Chalam and those type of guys. And uh, Yaakov Lipschitz became very important behind-the-scenes person in putting out this famous thing, Orla Yesharim, uh, which is a famous collection, which he got the Gedolim, the Gedolim Gedolim, to come out and say, Zionism is trafe. I'm talking about Chaim Brisker, the Lubavitch Rebbe, woo, he was uh, really off the charts. And a whole bunch of other big, like we say today, the Chashu Gedolim, and they say Zionism was illegitimate, it's trafe, in and of itself. This one said for this reason, that one said for that reason, like I tell you again, Lubavitch said that, you know, uh, Jews should, should move away from Israel or something like that. And, you know, if you're not from, it's a negative to bring a Jew to Israel. It's a, uh, it was really stark. Now, it had a little bit of an effect, but not a big effect. The reason I say it is because the main action where Zionism is happening, 
was in the local communities in which young people who are not listening to the rabbis, they're just forming their groups. And um, frankly, from the death of Herzl in 1904 for the next 10 years to the First World War, Zionism was kind of stuck in a, in a rut. It wasn't going anywhere anyway. But then the First World War came, and then all of a sudden the whole world recognized Zionism. They gave the Jews the Balfour Declaration. You should see this uh, letter, uh, this book that they wrote. It's online, I bet you. I bet you a Hebrew book. It's called Orla Yisharm. I think that's what it's called. And uh, he really is the one to put it together. He uh, got all the letters. It's very much his style. He got the letters together, and he, um, you know, edited them, and he put a, a, a anonymous introduction. And, oh, my goodness. Uh, in its day, it made a big rush, but only for five minutes, you see. He couldn't stop uh, the onward march of people moving to Palestine just with a, a book uh, full of uh, letters from the Gedolim. So it's, uh, but that was his style. He lived in a world, musical Hanan, where uh, if a Godel says something, that could be much being a lot of people elsewhere. By the 20th century, this was increasingly not the case. You understand? He was sort of uh, a relic of a different time when there was different type of politics. I think that's just an interesting uh, phenomenon of its own. On the other hand, he was the opposite of dumb. <laughs> and so he saw when that's not working, he started saying like this, then you have to have uh, an Agudas Yisrael. Now, he didn't use those words. He wasn't thinking exactly in those terms. But you need a firm organization. I think he wrote a book called Machzika Adas or something like that, in which um, he said, we have to form some form of counter to the Zionism, even though, of course, that meant being modern also. Because forming a, a, an Aguda, which is eventually what happened in 1912, as everybody knows, uh, is, is, is a new thing. But it's a necessary thing. Uh, and um, even though in the beginning he said it's not good for Jews of various countries together an international organization, by the time it's over, he was in favor of it. Because he said the Zionists are doing so we got to do it also. And um, he wrote about this in the Frum newspaper at that time. It's called Hapeles. Uh, that's the whole thing itself. The guy who, uh, Elia Akiva Rabinowitz, who wrote the, who was the editor of Pellis, had been a Zionist and then left because it was going, as he saw it, in the wrong direction. Uh, but that shows you that before it went in the wrong direction, he thought it's a good idea. You didn't usually find most people in, in Russia, a place like doing mamas like the Satmar, which is the Yaftaway for Mashiach. But Lipschitz used those kind of arguments in order to get these people to, 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 to sign on to, to write letters in Orle Yisharm. And so, as far as I'm aware, I think that he is the original uh, exponent of the notion that uh, to have anything Jewish substantial in Israel, especially a political, is a violation of the three oaths. And it's, a, you know, you're, you're, you're not believing in the Mashiach, and you have to wait for Hashem to do it in his time. I think he's the first one that articulated this. And later on, it was picked up by the Munkash and the Satmar and the others. I could be wrong about that. But I, I, if I remember correctly, that was the impression I got from reading the historiography long ago. Which is very interesting. Because he'll use any argument you can. That's who he was. He was a very good arguer, a very good polemicist in the, in the course of the literary campaigns that he, that he uh, you know, conducted. As you know, he therefore... I mean, after within a decade, they made the Agora. Which means, now I'm not saying it's caused, just simply because he wrote it, but his articles stirred a lot of talk. And in Russia, 
made young rabbis, relatively young rabbis, like Rechaim uh, Rezegrzynski and people like that, uh, think, you know, how, how do we do this? And from uh, all these, eventually came together the Agodah Yisrael. I don't say the Agodah proved to be you know, equal to the Zionist organization, but, but, but the general, but you have the equivalent of that today in the world you and I live. That the uh, from world, let me call it the Yeshiva world, call it the Haredi world, call it whatever you want, has organized itself as a separate Messias. You understand? And uh, this idea that we're not part of the regular claw, we have our own claw, is very much uh, a, 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 an idea that Lipschitz was pushing long ago as something necessary for Orthodox survival, otherwise they'll be swallowed up by all these others. And uh, whether it's good or bad is a separate idea. I spoke about the importance of Klal Yisrael, all the rest of it, and whether you have Shvatim, it's a very arguable proposition. But the argument in favor of it is, otherwise the non-from will swallow the from. And over the course, he died in, he died literally 100 years ago, 1922. And by that time, he was an old man. I don't know if he was in with it. Now, you remember in those days, you know, Social Security. When you got old, you just moved in with your kids if you could, and whatever. Now, that's how life was, especially in Eastern Europe. But, uh, but the fundamental notion that the Frum can only survive and flourish by self-consciously separating themselves, at least mentally, from the rest of the community and concentrating on their own and building up their own, which has been the key to the Frum's success, whether you like it or not, um, he's like a very early and articulate exponent of this if you read his writings long before other people were thinking in these terms. You understand? It's a little bit like a Hirschian type idea. A little bit in which there has to be an Orthodox JCC, an Orthodox baseball team, obviously Orthodox Chinuch, uh, the schools, everything. It has to be distinctly for us because um, because the others don't 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 support and don't understand it. You understand? Uh, and you'll always you'll, if if you're always uh, second fiddle by them, uh, you always get the short end of the stick. Uh, you know. So it, in American terms, uh, you can't go by the or, by the federation. And so you can't go out of federation. Because the federation will, will never treat you the way you need to be treated. You have to make your own federation, if I can use that terminology. This is how the form word has evolved in the 20th century. And to me, Yaakov Levi is a very interesting early uh, ideologue along these lines. He saw it a lot long before other people did. The other way is to say that the firm should be part of the whole community and we should work out our religious differences uh, you know, on the side. And... Uh, he he didn't see it though. He said he said that's not realistic. You see, he said it's not realistic. Now, in his old age, because uh, you know by eighteen ninety eight he was sixty. It's not that old, but he did this last stuff. I get the impression by the time he hit seventy or thereabouts, you know he was out of it. That's what I um, think because you don't see articles anymore. So that means you know for whatever reason, he was no longer a player. Uh, but. He had he he had composed a uh, huge um, autobiography uh, disguised as a history of uh, Russian Jewry, Eastern European Jewry during his lifetime, and uh, his son helped him, and they published it eventually in three parts. You know, I think after the First World War, even fairly late in his life, and it's uh, called Zichron Yaakov. It's fantastic. I read this many years ago. It had a very big impression on me long when I was young. I mean, when I was young, young. And basically, 
it's a Moskilic Haredi book, if you follow what I mean. In other words, it's exactly like one of these Moskil books, but on the other hand, it's totally Haredi. He gives you a history of Russian Jewry, as he saw it, and remember he had a bird's eye view, and so he knows all the Lashon Hara, all the Haskalah stuff, and he knows all the things that the from behind the scenes did. You see him negotiating, and constantly dealing with Yitzchakhanan, if you saw Salanter, all these big names, and um, the stuff was secret and private, and um, what do you call it? But he knows, and he kept a lot of the, um, and the doors, they shown him, it's, it's a who's who, and he kept the correspondence. It's a major work of, of, of Haredi historiography. Is it unbiased? Give me a break. <laughs> Give me a break. The guy was super biased. So what? Everything you read from regular is biased anti-from. So here is the corrective to read the bias from. You get what I'm saying? There's no such thing as objective. People don't realize it with history. There's a certain bias. But you have to realize that when you're reading it and that what you try to do is to get something in the middle is read somebody's pushing to the right and you read another guy's pushing to the left and, you know, like that. And eventually you get to see the clear picture that emerges in your own consciousness. You cannot understand the history of the Russian Jews, meaning the Jews of Eastern Europe, Poland, Lithuania, particularly in Tsarist Russia, Lithuania, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, these huge areas of Jewish population, without reading Yaakov Levi Lipschitz, three volumes. And <coughs> they dealt with the Tsarist officials, all this business, and it's a, now he's long, he's a lengthy, he's Mamsha, a muscular writer, he's lengthy, he's prolix, but he writes very well, okay? So you have to be able to say, I'm going to put in time, to, you know, to, it's, it's a lot to read, but but he's a very good writer, that's all I can say. And um, and he tells it like it is from his perspective. You understand? He tells it like it, the way he saw it. And it's one of those, if you, if now you got to read Hebrew, it's not in English. That, that's the way it goes. But if you can read Hebrew, especially the old-fashioned Moskilic Hebrew, which is easy to read. I don't know, I shouldn't say that, but if you if you have that talent that you can read the Moskilic Hebrew, then um, it's really fun. Okay, it's very, very interesting. In the beginning, he's got a haskama from everybody. There's no big rabbi that didn't sign one. You know, Chaim Meiser, this and the other, Lubavitcher, all of them, they were all like wild over this because they said, this is how it really was. You know, good, finally, somebody's giving the real thing. And um, as I said, he therefore emerges, and with this I conclude, I've gone very long, conclude as somebody who is an outstanding member of what I would call the secondary intelligentsia. Uh, he was a brilliant individual, obviously. On the other hand, he wasn't a big rov. Nobody ever said he knew Shas. Nobody said Paschal Shiloh. That's not how he presented himself. He, he found himself a niche where he could do something others couldn't do. And that was, as I said before, to be the expert in heresy, um, also to be a politically astute advisor, you can be sure, Vizical Hunter Inspector, him, they talked all the time privately. And, you know, he always was interested in Lipschitz's advice on every subject under the world, especially how to deal with the government and how to deal with the non frum and how to deal with the richie riches. All the same, Shemayim. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? How, how do we maneuver in this kind of a world? Um, at that time, the non frum had positions of strong influence. He had to deal with them very gingerly. And he is the chronicler of that. Again, he's the one who saw through the weak parts from a from perspective of the Haskell and of Zionism, the weak parts of the Zionism, 
uh, he was a sharp writer, a sharp polemicist. And so he really, you know, called attention to him and attacked him and all the rest of it. He was sufficiently successful in his days that they were afraid of him and didn't like him. That's why in the lit- literature of the Haskalah and the literature of the Zionists, they always called him the Lishka Ashkara, which means the Black Chamber, the Black Chancellery. The Black Chancery is a term in European uh, culture of the 19th century, which refer like to Bismarck or the Tsarist government, in which you say, this is the Department of Dirty Tricks. You, you get what I'm saying? The Department of Dirty Tricks. They're the ones who... Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. We're right in the middle of the Trump election, Trump number two, and uh, in 2020. So you remember people saying like this, did Russia uh, sabotage the elections last time with Hillary Clinton? Did China... So, who's doing it? Russia has a black chamber, you know, a secret chamber where they do all these kinds of things, or China or somebody else. So they said, the Frum have a Lishkashchora. And, um, by the way, uh, there's a little bit of truth in the Zionism thing, because I remember the Lubavitch Rebbe and Rabdavik Karliner, or somebody like that, actually wanted to put together precisely that. Um, but, the one really, the, the, the real... Uh, brains of the operation. The real writer, all the rest of it, was uh, was Yaakov Levi Lipschitz. So uh, that's why it's a very, very fascinating subject. Even though he's not a big rabbi, but the from world that you live in, we, you and I live in today, is more than just rabbis. You understand? There's a whole network. Uh, the journalists have a lot to say, too much to say. You got the 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 the, the handlers of big rabbis. Now, Yitzchak Specker was not handled by him. People say you couldn't get to see Rizzo Khan, you had to go through Yakalicious. That's a lie. Okay? Rizzo Khan was not handled by anybody. He knew exactly what he's doing, <laughs> the Rizzo Khan. Okay? If he kept Yakov one, he wanted to. He knew what he's doing. But nowadays we have a lot of these guys who are like you call machers, handlers. Uh, you, now we get into COVID. They say this big rabbi said this about the COVID, and the other one did. You don't know if, they, if he said it or the handler said it. Uh, well, I'll stop right there. Anyway, I thought it's just interesting. And with that, I, could, I conclude. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.